listening to The Show on the Road, a new podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and musicians from around the world. My name is Zach Lieberton. The Show on the Road is sponsored by Nomad, the tech accessory company that specializes in high-quality leather and ruggedly engineered accessories, batteries, cases, and cords that keep your gizmos charged, protected, and ready to rock. Not only do Nomad's products look awesome, they're built to last. And this is pretty cool, too. Their leather products come from the historic Horween Tannery in my hometown of Chicago, the same place that makes the leather on NBA's basketballs. Go to www.hellonomad.com BGS and put in the discount code BGS to receive 15% off until the end of January. Nomad, designed for adventure. This week on the podcast, my conversation with the legendary bluegrass singer-songwriter and masterful multi-instrumentalist Tim O'Brien. Starting in the late 1970s with the pioneering string band Hot Rise, Tim has trailblazed a quietly powerful and influential solo career that includes 16 albums and multiple Grammy Awards, writing what many consider to be the new standards of bluegrass music. I first heard of him while learning his melancholy folk classic, Nellie Kane, around a campfire. And it's funny, sometimes you assume a song must be very, very old when you sing it. The verses are so worn in, the chorus so damn lonesome, it must be the work of some long-dead legend who only exists on Dusty 78 Records. But no, I can assure you Tim is very much alive, and when he's not hiking around Colorado, he's touring the festival circuit around the world with multiple bands and simultaneously preserving and creating a new old-time sound with each album he makes. I was pretty surprised that he was totally down to sit in my minivan with me outside the Rhythm and Roots Fest in Rhode Island and talk about ghosts and myths and making the mandolin great again. It's probably the most fun I've had in a parking lot since I was a teenager. Now that he's a bluegrass elder statesman, Tim has made the time to produce albums for the new crop of festival headliners, like Yonder Mountain String Band and the infamous String Dusters. He's also recorded and toured with Mark Knopfler and Steve Martin, had his songs covered by the Dixie Chicks and Garth Brooks, not bad for a small bespectacled kid from Wheeling, West Virginia, who dropped out of college and headed west with the idea that maybe, just maybe, if he learned enough songs, he could make it out there. Well, let's hear from him now. Tim O'Brien. I think we're, uh, you know, well-situated in this van. You know? Yeah, man. Hanging in a van in a bluegrass festival. Used to be it went here for something else. <laughs> Instead of doing a podcast. <laughs> Are you referring to cocaine? <laughs> no, no friend at all. <laughs> no friend at all. Do you have your own bus or little van, or you guys just fly in and fly out? We usually fly in and fly out. We're uh, Hot Rise has got two guys living in Colorado and two in Nashville, so a lot of times we'll fly to either place and then travel from there. But it just varies. This weekend we we all met in Philadelphia. Yeah. And uh, been going from there. Yeah, it seems like a lot of bands are kind of all over the place and then connecting in the middle somewhere these days. Yeah, I don't know when the low fare air air you know the low airfare started started kicking in. It used to be so restrictive to do that, but you know now it's now you can sort of it's much more modular or something. Do you do the Southwest? Yeah, Southwest is the the, the, uh, the good friend <laughs> to the musicians. We fly with eight people, 16 free bags. <laughs> I know, it's awesome. And, uh, you know, my when I'd go on my own my own gigs, and actually this weekend too, uh, my partner Jan, I've got a companion pass for her. So it's like, you know, yeah. It's the way to do it. Yeah, she sings in my band, and uh, we stay in the same room, and I get a free ticket for her. <laughs> 
you know, keep your friends <laughs> and your her. enemies close. Yeah. So you, uh, you're out on the road for what, 100 days a year? More? Yeah, about 100 maybe. I think that's about right. I try to keep it to that. And I, I pad it in with free days where I can do something nice, like on uh, tomorrow and the next day and the day after we, Jen and I are staying in a cottage in Maine on a lake and a kayak. And my friend over there has got an oyster farm, so we'll go hang with him, eat some oysters. Do you consider yourself outdoorsy? I'm just a little bit outdoorsy. I'm not like uh, I'm not going to go backpacking or anything, but I, I like to camp out now and again. And... Uh, Definitely look for a nice place like that to hang. Where's your favorite place you've camped? Oh, you know, back in the day, I I uh, loved going up in the Tetons, mm. but I I don't do the backpacking anymore. But you know, I just like look for a little out of the way place. It doesn't really matter where it is. It really doesn't matter. Just a creekside somewhere, or you know. It's all about those pads underneath the sleeping bag. Yes, right. You know, um, yesterday we were up at this thing. Thomas Point Beach, Maine, and uh, I I had been there once before, but only for a few hours to do, to do the gig, but uh, my friend was camped out there, and he goes there every year, and, uh, you know, it's like on a point, mm. looking over this estuary, he's got a campfire going, you know, the stars are out, and the water is shiny, and the moon, and, I mean, it was heavenly. We're so used to not seeing the stars that I feel like when you really see the stars, it's almost like it feels like you're in another time, like you're in yeah. another part of the universe. Yeah, I saw some great stars last week. We were out in Kansas. My partner Jan's got a her her son's got a farm there. He's raising Hereford pigs mm. and uh, goats and stuff. But uh, we camped there. Well, we had, uh, we delivered an old old tra- uh, camper trailer there to leave it there. It's kind of just rusted in our backyard. But we stayed there, and there's no lights out there, man. It's, it was incredible. I saw the best view of Orion I'd ever seen. Yeah, you forget how most of this country is not near a major city, you know. Yeah, it's everywhere. Those, And that's, you know, that's, like, that's the place. Kansas is amazing because I grew up in West Virginia, and, you know, the sky is small. It's, you know, between ridge to ridge, and uh, it's beautiful, and I love the hills. But out in Kansas, it's like... The sky is forever, and the planes are forever, and it's like everything's in square sections. To me, that's really exotic. Yeah. <laughs> Where in West Virginia did you grow up? I'm from Wheeling. It's in northern Panhandle. That's that middle finger of West Virginia I'm from. <laughs> were people playing bluegrass when you growing up, or is it something you learned later? Well, growing up, I was just like, you know living in a kind of leave-it-to-beaver kind of suburb. And uh, my my family didn't, they weren't like country music. They weren't musicians, and they didn't really know about that. But there was this radio show there in Wheeling called WWVA Jamboree. Uh, well, the radio station, and then they had the, the Jamboree on um, Saturday nights, and so you could go down there and hear the hillbilly music. So I could hear music there. And I met a, I met a guy um, by the time I was about 14, I was getting into it. I was starting to realize uh, what was out there, you know, getting a taste of it with Doc Watson and Flatten Scruggs. And uh, this guy was a banjo player on the staff band there at the radio station. And um, so I got with him and got my feet wet a little bit. But it was, you know, I was mostly into the British invasion and 
some of the, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary kind of folk music stuff before that. What did your dad do? He was a lawyer, an attorney in Wheeling. And, uh, yeah, he liked to sing in the car. And he, sing, he sang at church, you know. And, uh, but uh, he had a banjo mandolin that he played in college, apparently. And uh, when I started playing the guitar a lot, he said, well, maybe you'd be interested in this thing. And my aunt gave me a fiddle. She'd been playing in the, in the symphony when she was younger, when got married and raised a family and gave it all up. So I got this fiddle and a banjo mandolin, and I'm going, geez, what is this, and how do you play them? And uh, that's kind of, and I met this banjo player guy that played just like Earl Scruggs, and that kind of set me on my, on my path. I mean, it's, it's interesting that, you know, bluegrass is such a sort of worldwide institution at this point, right? But it's a very new music. Yeah, pretty you know? new, yeah. I mean, uh, it's, what you, is, is the Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys really the start of it, or was there people before it? I mean, Bob Wills is almost kind of, feels like there's bluegrass stuff in there, but, like, what is the origin of bluegrass for you? Well, uh, I guess most people's definition starts with when Earl Scruggs and Lester Flatt joined up with Bill Monroe. Mm-hmm. When that banjo kind of came in, it it really changed Monroe's music. It kind of tightened everything up, and it was like the... I don't know, I think Bill was looking for something, but he didn't know what it was he was going to find, and that was it. And it kind of everything crystallized around that, and that was about 1945. And uh, you can hear him on some of these live tapes on the Opry where it's just sort of, they're just developing it. I mean, it's just happening while you listen. It's pretty pretty stunning. You know, it's sort of all ready to happen. It's, conditions were right, you know, like for this sort of chemical reaction to happen. And people were so excited about it. It's uh, And that was a radical thing at the time. You know, so many, all the influences, all the elements were there prior to that, but it just hadn't been combined the right way. It's like, you know, the right recipe. When you see young kids twisting bluegrass around <clears throat> and, you know, myself guilty as charged, putting drums and horn sections and all stuff around it, is it something that you're into or is it something that muddies the water a bit? Well, I like the, I like the idea that it, it's malleable and I, and, I, and I definitely am part of the... I'm, I'm part of, if that's a problem, I'm part of the problem. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely changing things up adding other colors and textures and grooves, you know, sometimes. But, like, when I play with Hot Rise, we really want to play that sort of straight 2-4 and the occasional 3-4 thing and just, get, you know, kind of get that that drive and that lift, and that's that's kind of what I like about it the most. But as far as chords and, you know, what kinds of songs, I don't really care what it is. Uh, yeah, anything goes. I mean, it's, we're always recombining things, I think, as, as musicians and writers, artists, it's, there's really, I don't really think there's anything new under the sun, it's just how you, every different brain has a little bit of a different filter that, you know, can make it new again, I hope. The song on that record, uh, Guardian Angel, um, really is, you know, has that ache in it, I feel like, about people you've lost and yeah. you couldn't ever really... Connect with, even though you wanted to. Yeah. And uh, can you tell us a little more about that song? Well, that's that's about my family. Um, when I was little, um, I always knew that I had the sister who who died. I mean, I was only not quite two when she died. She was six and uh, got encephalitis, and they didn't know 
Mm. She had an earache on New Year's Eve, and by the morning of January 2nd, she was gone. But anyway, I didn't know her, but I always knew that I had this sister, and then my, my mom would tuck me in to bed, and there was a picture above, hung on the wall. It was one of these old uh, prints by uh, Hubble. Uh, I am Hubble. And it's called Guardian Angel, her Guardian Angel. And she's, the angel is guiding this little girl past a snake in the grass. So my mom would tuck me in and say, that's, you know, your sister is watching over you. And I kind of equated my lost sister with this picture. And only, um, you know, I'm 64. So four years ago, my my partner, Jan, we noticed this in a box in the, in the attic, this picture. And I said, oh, yeah, that thing was always, I don't remember a time when, it wasn't hanging, mm. and um, so she fixed up the, the frame, which was busted, and rematted the print on there, and we hung it up. And I just would walk by there and look at that thing. I said, "My God, I got it's just so much information in there that I can maybe I can process now." Do you believe in reincarnation? Yeah, in a way, I do. I do. I don't. I'm not sure what how to explain it, or or you know what, but I do think stuff does come back around um like karma yeah like karma <laughs> comes around but I don't know I think people do well there's like old souls and like you know it's like you see these kids sometimes you know I remember there was a a girl who used to play clarinet in our band Chloe Fioranzo she started playing with us when she was like 15 she was like playing these Artie Shaw kind of like genius jazz solos and you're like where does that come from this girl from San Diego you know like yeah it's crazy like, there's channeling something from some other plane here it's crazy yeah I sort of think it's kind of out there in the air and it's, it's our souls kind of grab onto it or something and maybe maybe it's not like a plan or anything but it just sort of happens <laughs> why do you think sad songs make us happy Oh, I don't know. I, you know, I'm Irish, and they say the Irish are only, you know, only happy if they can cry a little bit. <laughs> uh, I don't know what that is. Maybe I think if you it, don't really feel something, you know, all the way through, you're not going to really feel something. Yeah, I think the sad songs are, I think it bring us together because we can all relate to hardship and and experience like these a song is well told it's funny about them if they're it seems like if you tell um like when you write a song if you put personal details you would think maybe that keeps it from being universal but i think it actually brings people mm -hmm. in and it it shows i guess the goal for me in writing a song like that is to sort of show or to let people understand, or let them feel something that they already felt, or they don't necessarily look to. But I don't know. This this guise of entertainment brings us kind of to more of a church-like place where we can reflect. Your uh, duet live album uh, you did with Daryl Scott in 2012 um, were usually a lot better than this, which is maybe my favorite album title I've seen in a long time. <laughs> um, can you tell me about like how the difference is between recording live and and in the studio for you? Um, well, yeah, it's uh, well, recording with Daryl is um, 
it's kind of we always whenever we've recorded it's always been a reflection of what we've already done on stage or the way we've done you know because what happened with him and 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 myself we, we were on a tour I said Daryl why, why don't you come doing this tour we went to England and Ireland and um we'll each play a set and maybe we can play a little bit together well after the first night I mean playing the playing together was so much fun and it didn't matter what he played or I played I mean, we could sort of follow each other and actually sparks were flying already and we just said let's just do more of this so the next night and the rest of the nights it was just on stage together the whole time and seeing what would happen and um he's so fleet of foot and uh powerful uh it, it's inspiring to play with him his groove and his singing i don't know it's uh but is there a certain nervousness when there's a live album about to be recorded where it's like we have like one shot to get this right almost like yeah or is it, or is it just you're so used to playing the song i think that can be a problem and i think uh we were i remember that night being um it was a benefit concert and uh we hadn't played much together so we were just kind of excited to play and we weren't planning i don't know that he was he said i'm going to bring somebody to record this i said okay that's fine. Oh, so you weren't even necessarily. I wasn't it. thinking it was going to be a record or anything, but it's he said, you know, a couple of years later, he said, you know, this is there's a there's a record in here, and it was cool. I mean, mom and dad's waltz. We never played that anywhere any other night. I don't <laughs> yeah. think. You know, it's kind of cool what happened. Do you think like finding compatible musicians, you know, that really have that sparks fly moment? Does it feel like falling in love almost? Yeah, it is like that. I mean, it's like a. You're, it's a kindred spirit, and uh, you're you're pointed in the same direction. It's uh, it's a great thing, and you want to cultivate that. You know, you want to you know want to you want to see how far it would go. You definitely, you know, probably are one of the only people I've ever heard who created a second band from one band <laughs> by a costume change in the show. And so when you do the red knuckles on the trailblazers thing do you feel like it's part of the theatrical uh show or is it like a completely different persona that you put on when you come out well you know it's when we started hot rise you know pete said let's get a band together and i said yeah but um can we do some country music too not just bluegrass and i said do you ever play Cause a lot of a lot of banjo players would double on dobro you know to change up the sound or whatever I said, do you ever play Dobro? He said, no, but, uh, you know, I might check it out. And he he bought a, you know, lap steel for 50 bucks instead. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's great. We can do some Hank Williams kind of things with that. And uh, he started learning that. And then um, our initial, we had a different guitarist earlier on, and he quit. And so our bassist moved the guitar. Well, I'm it's too long of a story, but <laughs> um, we got... Nick to play bass, but Nick was really good at playing country electric guitar. So I said, "Great, we'll just kind of do kind of Hank Williams and Bob Wills kinds of stuff, and that'll." So we just play, you know, for a couple of years we just play that music. At starting at the third set at the bar, out of four, you know, you do something different, or maybe end of the second set to sort of change things up. And then we had this concert. And uh, we were a new band. We had a nice concert at a nice concert hall in our hometown in Denver there. And uh, 
I said, well, let's do a quick costume change. And, um, you know, our, our personas, it was like Halloween. And all of a sudden, things kind of, you know, with the audience and a costume and you had this music, well, all of a sudden we had to be somebody else. You know, we were trying to put this illusion on. And it was funny. I think early on we were just inventing this stuff and making it up. But then there was like a radio show. Who's Red Knuckles modeled after? Well, uh, some, you know, some band that you've seen at a VFW hall. Yeah. You know, or a political, you know, like Republican corn roast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know? Uh, Somebody you'd never heard of who are, you know, they're pretty good, really. And, um... And they know songs you'd never heard of before that are pretty, pretty, pretty cool. And kind of, it's like from another world than you're used to. Uh, but anyway, we had this uh, interview at a nice festival, and a radio uh, host said, "I really want to interview Red Knuckles and the Trailblazers." And we said, "Oh, okay, we can bring them in." <laughs> and so she asked us where we're from, and you know, if we had any other jobs, and you know, and so we got done with this radio show, and we're making all this stuff up. And I said, "Boys." That's our story. We got to remember what we said. Do you feel like there's a certain thing that you would want to be remembered as, like a hundred years from now? It's a weird thing. I I don't really. I I'm, I'm so enthralled with this music and the and the way it relates to society and history and stuff. And I don't know. I, the fact that I get to do it is is such a great reward. But I guess if I was, if I wanted to be remembered something, it, w- it would be that uh, brought people together, maybe. Um, and uh, we got to, you know, kind of compare notes and um, help, e- help each other through. I mean, that's kind of trite, maybe, but uh, it kind of well, really is. there's certain songs also of yours that <clears throat> maybe accidentally have become standards in the genre, right? Well, I'm really proud of, proud of the fact that you can walk through a bluegrass festival campground and hear a song or two of mine now and again and that's to me is someone's gonna be playing nelly kane around the fire i know it's the ultimate flattery and uh you know it's great because i feel like i'm just i'm just got handed a key i handed a handed the torch just uh i'm doing the same thing that others have always done and uh hopefully it helps it continue why do you think nelly kane is sort of stuck in people's minds i really don't know what that is uh we you know when we got to uh, to make our first record that was a really new song and usually we would have uh, played the songs on stage a lot before we agreed to record them you know, or felt like we were ready but that one just we needed a song and I had this new song and we played it and uh, it just kind of I don't know that it just worked out good I think it helps um, Fish played it on stage mm. uh, a lot of times and uh, that's helped us too but it's more than that, I guess. I, I think it's just like a... It's kind of a cowboy song, I guess, or something. Maybe it's just... I don't know. It's like old grass, old old bluegrass, but it's got a little slightly... I don't know. I think everybody's... Uh, like I say, your own brain is a filter that can't be duplicated. Is Nellie Kane inspired by a certain lady? No. It's more like... Uh, the guy that made my mandolin, um, Nugget Mandolins, he had uh, fallen in love with a woman that had a had a son, and she would had been uh, you know left at 
left alone with this raising this kid on her own and and I also liked uh, one of my favorite movies as a little kid was Shane it's mm. a western and that kind of story Shane comes in he's a hired hand on the ranch and she's his uh, love interest has just hired him on but she's she's by herself with this young kid and uh, Shane becomes his hero it is a kind of cinematic song Actually, I'm having this memory of when I was in film school of thinking about writing a short film based on Nellie Kane. Wow, that's great. Well, I'll tell you... I should have done it. I'll tell you what, even even more flattering is, is Gillian Welch writing that song, uh, Caleb Meyer. Yeah. And it's Nellie Kane's... It's like her... It's like Nellie Kane gets to talk. Mm. It's, it's Nellie Kane's voice, and I, that's like so flattering that she would get that out of that and, and, and want to go there. I always like to ask this question. If you could have the Tim O'Brien Music Festival, any artist, dead or alive, who are the ten artists that you would put on there? Oh, man. I don't know. I might get Roscoe Holcomb and... Uh, um, Maybe uh, Charlie Christian. Maybe Charlie Christian and Count Basie could do a little set together. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, Over on the jazz stage. <laughs> I don't know. Jeez. Uh, uh, Mose Allison. I'd like to bring him back. Uh, Paul Brady's still alive. I'd get him, too. <laughs> <laughs> and Rock Cooter. <laughs> I mean, anyone. <laughs> it could be anyone. <laughs> I saw Ray Cooter up in, uh, we played a festival in Vancouver Island a month ago, and he was there. Do you have the Hamiltones? Was it, or was it just as, is he doing some shows with uh, Roseanne Cash and no, John Leventhal? No, it was him and his son and some people, in the, I forget yeah, if it was there, the Hamiltones or not. The Hamiltones are like a three, three gospel singers that I think sing on other people's records too, but it's pretty cool. Uh, this, the show, I, I got a, you know, live tape from a friend, but yeah. Ry Cooter is such a hero because he puts together the old music and and puts it in, a, in a, into a new frame, and uh, he never disappoints. So I really love what he does. I'm going to ask you to think of the first thing that comes to your mind. Orange. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> when I say the following thing. Oh, when you say the following thing. Let <laughs> me see where your brain goes. Okay, ready. <laughs> New Mexico. Uh, flying saucers. Vixen. Elvira. Mm. Chili fries. Hot dog. Kisses. Sloppy. <laughs> <laughs> this is very fitting for the place where you are right now. <laughs> Parking lot. Cement. Breakdown. Fiddle, 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 fiddle. <laughs> <laughs> Is there ever a point where, like, you're in the middle of the show and you're like, I can't listen to fiddle anymore today? <laughs> no, I love the fiddle no matter what. Uh, I uh, I remember this night in this festival in Shetland 
uh, in the United Kingdom. It's a really remote place. It's kind of way out in the middle of nowhere between the tip of Scotland and Norway. And uh, we're trying to avoid the crowd, and we went to this bar. There's these old ladies kind of finishing up their little hot toddies. And we played some music, and there's this... I know there was a succession of people that came in between 11 and 1. Fiddlers of all varieties. Really good ones and really bad ones. And somehow it was all, it was all fine. It all blended? It all sort of, it was quite a progression. Um, there was a guy, there was a guy that came in. Um, we were really starting to get something good going. This guy came in and it, he said, I don't want to play you. He was really drunk. He said, I don't want to play your guitar. No, 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 you can't have my guitar. He says, <laughs> he says I want your guitar. And the guitarist, he said, uh, there was one on the wall, like these pubs in, in uh, Scotland. He said, there's one there. He says, I see. so he gets it. And he's, he says, I have no pick. <laughs> so he kind of gave up. He couldn't really play it. I think I gave him a pick, and he, he couldn't play it. Then he says, yeah, I want to play your fiddle. I said, no, you can't have my fiddle. I said, there's one on the wall. I said, he gets the fiddle. He says, I have no bow. I said, the bow's there. Well, he... What a convenient bar. He, he, could sort of, he sort of got out of tune. I could tell it was McLeod's reel. And then he said, I want to play the bass. <laughs> <laughs> he saw the bass on it. There was an electric bass on the wall. And he, he got that and tried to play it, and there was no amp. Yeah. And then, he, but, and, and then uh, there's another guy who comes up to play the fiddle. Well, meanwhile, the bartender comes around, and he starts to play the piano. He's really good. Yeah. And then another guy comes to play the fiddle, and he was the worst. He was not drunk, but he was <laughs> the worst fiddle player. You could have danced to it. His rhythm was great, but you could not tell what he was playing. And it just kind of went from there. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have... You play almost all the string instruments, right? You don't play bass. I play bass if I if there's a need for a bass yeah. man, yeah. I'm not very good at it. That's a hard instrument to play well, I think. Do you consider yourself a mandolin player first or a guitar player first? I'm a guitar player first, and I uh, I go back and forth, and I love the fiddle. I kind of fiddle's more of a hobby anymore. I don't use it on stage as much. It's kind of a, I use it as a sort of change of pace. And I have, when I have my own band, I like to have my own a different guy play fiddle than me because then I can sing, and and sometimes we can play together. Back to grandma's hands. Did you know your grandma's? Yeah, yeah, my grandma. Uh, my mom was from Nebraska, from the Sand Hills of Nebraska, a little town called Broken Bow. And That's an awesome name. Yeah, it's an awesome little place, Sand Hills. Uh, anyway, I remember her, Clara, um, Clara Varney was her maiden name. She was kind of prim and proper and kind of, old, you know, a real granny, kind of, kind of a rail. She was kind of a straight-backed rail of a woman, and she got mad at me. I filled up the window wells in the basement with a hose. <laughs> Just thought that might be fun. <laughs> but uh, Why she not? apparently she was a practical joker, and uh, she had a dribble glass that she liked to it would match the wine glasses, and she'd put that out. Somebody should play a trick on. They'd raise their glass, and it would dribble all over them. A dribble glass. Yeah, it's like a got a leak in it, huh. <laughs> on purpose. And then my other grandmother uh, was Estelle Schladecker. Married my grandfather uh, Francis O'Brien, and she was uh, 
came from a German family in Cincinnati, and um, she would. Uh, she, my grandfather would pull her leg. He tortured her. But she was she was a she was a. I don't know. She was a kind of a hands off grandma. She didn't really. She took. She was nice to us kids, but there was a limit to it. <laughs> was there a point where your family questioned your decision to be a full-time touring musician? Yeah, my my parents thought um, they they I think they were nervous about it. Your dad um, want you to be a lawyer? Well, his my oldest brother um, after college he went and his Vietnam and he went in the Marines. He was going to come back and go to law school. My and then my next his his next younger brother went to the Naval Academy and so he wasn't going to be a lawyer and I thought about you know briefly about it but yeah I didn't I think I think with the loss of two children see the, the oldest my oldest brother uh, the oldest of the five of us died when I was 14 and so you know they'd lost Brigid the middle middle uh, child and then and then uh, that's 56, and then 68. You know, 12 years later, they lost their oldest. Mm. And I think they... And my and actually, my oldest brother sort of encouraged me to keep up with the music. And um, he kind of... He left a little money in his will, and I got a D28. Man, I was 14, and I went down to the music store in Wheeling and mm. got a D28. Maybe he's your guardian angel on the guitar. Definitely, definitely. He was a real sponsor and a real inspiration. When he came home from college, he had, uh, well, he had records by, you know, like Joe Lewis, Joe Williams sings blues with Count Basie Orchestra or yeah. Miles Davis or Ray Charles or Odetta and yeah. um, Lambert Hendrickson Ross. And uh, so, yeah, he was an inspiration. And he said, you know, I started playing electric guitar and, and my, my brother Tripp, he said, oh, don't, that's great, but, don't forget the acoustic. He said, "Check out Segovia," and I'd mm. never heard of Segovia, and uh, and uh, and the flamenco guys, Man Manitas de Plata. He said, "I don't know what's his first name or his last name, but check him out." <laughs> so yeah, he was definitely a, an inspiration, and uh, it's sort of a responsibility in a way. Yeah. He told me to you know keep work. I was working to try to get an Eagle Scout, and he um, that last Christmas gift he gave me a a buck knife, and he said, you know. You're gonna get your eagle, and you'll want this knife. And uh, so, yeah. It's. Well, I guess what I was gonna say, by the time all that happened, and I'm kind of getting to be of age, my parents is like, well, you know, whatever makes you happy, we want you to be happy. They'd been through enough to sort yeah. of realize that that was yeah. the main thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I give them more credit than that, but you know, they were nervous about me being a musician. People say, how do I get to where I'm professional? I said, well, you, if you really want to be, you will be. There's <laughs> just, no, yeah. just nothing's going to hold you back. Well, that's why I, you find a way in. Do you feel there's a certain dangerous um, electricity and sort of the type of genius that will flame out or, you know, have that mythological early death? You know, it's like, like I feel like a lot of times the people who make it are are still here because we harness whatever sort of darkness is within us or uh, I don't know it's hard to say but like, like you have to be a regular person also you know and like yeah, have that balance that's the trick isn't it um, and uh, being true to yourself 
self and not worrying because you're always being self-employed you know it's hard to say no and yeah. uh sometimes you'll say yes to things that maybe you didn't really belong there <laughs> and it's a if you can't sort of differentiate and learn to tame that <clears throat> fence some of that off <clears throat> then you could really lose your brain you could lose your soul you could lose you know the reason you started doing this i mean that's one thing but also like you know drugs and alcohol get in the way and you know i think fame and stuff gets in the way just as easily and uh so you know <laughs> i've never had the fame problem <laughs> you know i was kind of very highly moderated well, but it's like, I think there is a, a certain blessing to having this Americana roots folk community be a little bit isolated in a way, where yeah. it's not like the MTV type thing, you know, where we yeah. can kind of like be <coughs> in a community that really does respect what we're doing, but it's not this sort of dangerous, sycophantic, crazy f- thing you know, what you yeah. see in, in sort of pop stardom. Because I feel like you see people like, you know, Justin Bieber or something, and you're like, I feel bad for them, in a way. Like, they can't be real people anymore. No. Yeah. It's hard to be that famous and continuous, continue that. And, um, it, it's, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know what it would be like, but what I was think the What was the biggest rock star moment that you've had that you can remember? <laughs> well, I don't know. Telluride main stage. <laughs> oh, it's funny. Like that moment where you're like, I made it. Well, you know, actually, this last last uh, June at Telluride, you know, we were all done with, by Sunday, I was all done with, Sunday afternoon, I was all done with all my, you know, chores, all, you know, professional stuff. So I was just kind of hanging, we're relaxing, have a few drinks, and. Jan and I was, went up on stage to watch some of the Dirt Band. We watched on one side of the stage. I said, this is kind of cool. And we went around the other side of the stage. And all of a sudden, they said, come on out of here. Yeah. And I said, me? What am I going to do? <laughs> yeah. They got everything covered here. But I got up there, and there was a mandolin to play. And I played the mandolin. I thought, man, I'm playing, I'm sing, I'm playing with a Dirt Band? After all these years, I'm playing with a Dirt Band? The Dirt Band. Yeah, nitty-gritty Dirt Band. And, um... You know, to me, they're like rock, uh, pop gods. You know, from yeah. the, from the circle being broken. Circle being broken. I mean, that's really kind of. That's a real watershed recording uh, from whenever that's seventy-one or something. I'm about sixteen, seventeen years old. That's anyway. And then they're doing. Uh, they kick into the weight, and I go, "Oh, great! They're doing the weight." And then he, and then Jeff turns to me and says, "Crazy Chester, come on! It's like right yeah. now, I gotta sing yeah. it." And I'm going, "Wow!" And I just put everything I could into that, to that one verse. And I, and after I was like, I was wrung out. I was I was amazed by that. You ever you did the uh, tuna fest in Denmark, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, lots of times. Yeah, we did that a few years in a row, and they do that song at the very end. You know, if you're still around, you know, the cover of circle being broken right um and they like arrange you on the it's, stage it's highly bit. orchestrated isn't it you know they're very organized people yeah. over there yeah. in denmark but they for some reason they go you you go sing with the blind boys of alabama <laughs> over there i was like i don't I'd really rather not they like put me like on this like vocal corner with blind boys of alabama that's funny and it was like 
Oh shit. That's really funny. Now, now I was in Ireland once, and they were having this arts festival. Some friends of mine were going to play it, play at it, and they were going to play traditional, you know, Irish jigs and reels. It was an all female band, and I knew, you know, these most of these women and their their spouses. Anyway, so, but they're opening for this band from Mali, this trio. I can't remember the guy's name. There's, it turns out there's a whole bunch of Malian people that live in that area of, of uh, Galway, hmm. County Galway. Anyway, this they said, oh, we're gonna we're supposed to play with these guys. We're supposed to sit in with them because we met them at some festival in the desert, in Timbuktu or something. And uh, as one we, as one does. Yeah, I said, would you sit in? I said. No, why? <laughs> what? And they're up there playing this stuff, and it's so yeah. cosmic and wild. It's a power trio with, you know, a Telecaster and a Fender, you know, a, a precision bass and a drum kit. But they're doing all that, you know, uh, African polyrhythm stuff. So then we're, so then they wrote me in, and so I'm gonna get up there and play. So I said okay, and I played the mandolin, and they were playing along, and I know I had noticed that every song that they played. The African band was all in the same key. It was like D minor. Pretty much everything was in D minor. And, uh, you know, these girls were just playing. They were playing a G and A minor. And <laughs> I said, uh, play this one tune. And, and it's a D minor tune. And they said, oh, that was after it was over. <laughs> they said, that was such a great idea. <laughs> I said, well, I know what key they're playing. Yeah. So I, I was worth something. If you could do a concept album with from a completely different country's type music, what would it be? Well, I mean, I tried Tim to make Tim O'Brien does Peruvian folk songs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd like to do, a, I'd love to make a record with a, like a big band or a jazz band and be the singer. I'd love to do that sometime. I don't know about another country. Uh, I've tried to play Irish music and I, you know, I can, some success, you know, with it, but it's hard to take the American out enough to, for it to be real. Should we play a song? Oh yeah, let's play a song. I got a mandolin here. It was good one time, everything was mighty fine. The cold tipples roared day and night And then things, they got slow For no reason that I know The ill winds, they hove into sight The mines, they all closed down Everybody just laid around There wasn't very much that you could do But stand in that line Get your rations grip on time Woman, I could see it killing you Now the soft new snows of December Lightly fall cabin round I saw that last train from Poor Valley taking by 
head, Becky Richmond Brown. It's been coming on, soon you would be gone, leaving cross your mind every Guess I'd better be on my way Now the soft new snows of December Lightly fall our cabin around Saw that last train from Port Valley Taking I should blame you now, but I never could somehow. A miner's wife, you weren't cut out to be. It wasn't what you thought, just some dream, Lord, you brought when you left home and ran away with me. Now the soft new snow. Lightly fall my cabin round Saw that last train from Poor Valley Taking brown-haired Becky Richmond bound It was that last train from Poor Valley Taking brown-haired Becky Big thanks to Tim O'Brien for speaking with me. You can go to timobrien.net for his tour dates and his music, and you can check out the recent feature on thebluegrasssituation.com of the 40th anniversary of Hot Rise. His latest record is called Where the River Meets the Road, and it's all songs by people from West Virginia, like him, including Bill Withers, Hazel Dickens, and Billy Ed Wheeler, among others. The show on the road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love the show on the road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash show on the road. Tell your friends, and also be sure to check out BGS's ever-growing collection of podcasts up right now on the bluegrasssituation.com. The show on the road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lupiton. See you on the trail.